In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. God willing, today we're going to continue studying um, the book of 1 Timothy. Uh, last time we studied chapters 2 and 3. Uh, and God willing, today we're going to study chapters 4 and 5. Does anyone uh, want to summarize for us some of the main points that we studied last time for anyone who was here? Okay, good. Criteria of selecting bishops and deacons. Um, that was kind of the, the like one of the main points that he mentioned, and that was you know most of the chapter was speaking about that. Um, and so it's very important for us to look at that and to consider what are the criteria for people who serve in the church, um, not just the the clergy, but even the servants and other people, because the their um, their lifestyle, their behavior, their attitude, their speech. All of this has a big impact on the, the, the church as a whole. And that's why St. Paul wanted to emphasize this to St. Timothy. So again, as just a summary, um, 1 Timothy is one of the pastoral epistles uh, in the New Testament, um, which is St. Paul is writing to a person to give them encouragement, pastoral care, to aid them in their ministry. So Timothy was a bishop. St. Paul, of course, was the apostle, and, and St. Timothy was a disciple of St. Paul. And so St. Paul is writing to him to encourage him um, about various things. So, you know, in the last time when we speak about the qualifications of a bishop, um, it's because St. Timothy was to select bishops for ordination and to select clergy and deacons for ordination. And so um, he was telling him some of the things to look for uh, when he is selecting that. Um, so today in chapter 4, uh, St. Paul addresses... Um, some some components and aspects specifically of the spiritual life and the pastoral work of um, of Timothy. So it says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Okay, So here, St. Paul is warning St. Timothy about some of the challenges that he is to face. And this is also kind of with the spirit of prophecy when he's speaking about in the latter times. Of course, this is something that um, existed at the time, but also in the latter times, we find more and more that the world is uh, moving toward this. The Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, and then having their own conscience seared. Um, so there will be uh, an apostasy. An apostasy means like a falling away from the faith of the believers, um, of those who were once the true and authentic believers. And actually, we read even in the book of Revelation about some of the prophecies of things to come, and we read about how um, even some of the elect will be deceived. Um, and the reason that people will leave the church in this apostasy is because of the deception of Satan. And the deception of Satan, something that is very uh, subtle, very clever, and he gets more advanced in his deceptions as time goes on. Um, and as, as human beings become more knowledgeable and more aware, um, he, he uses different techniques in order for him to cause us to fall. Whether it be deceptions in the form of wrong information, whether it be deceptions in terms of like bodily lusts and things that, dr that lure us away from the truth, 
Um, all of the deceptions are ultimately rooted in Satan. And sometimes we point to different people uh, or different groups of people in the world and we look at them as the enemy and we say, oh, this particular group and this particular group does, does this. But actually what is behind all of this is Satan himself. You know, um, it's, um, this, is, this is one of his deceptions. And actually uh, the biggest deception, and you know, maybe you've heard this before, is, is that Satan has kind of convinced the world that he doesn't exist. And if, if people don't believe that he exists, then they let down their guard and they don't. Um, they're not watchful and they're not careful. And they find themselves easily falling into the deceptions of Satan. And we see this maybe with the youth, you know, those who are not very uh, aware of all of these deceptions and how they follow the crowd and they do the things that they're told um, that they should do and believe what they should believe without really thinking to consider the harm um, maybe that they are causing or the harm in the beliefs that they are espousing. Um, so he's saying that in the latter times that the, they will begin to live by and preach a new doctrine um, that will appear at the time to be righteous and moral as a substitute for God's commandments. So, for instance, all of the things that now we are told about tolerance and how we have to love all these different groups of people and love what it is that they do um, and, and, and affirm that what it is that they do is good, um, this is uh, kind of falls under this, like that there is a new doctrine, right? And this new doctrine is has the appearance of love uh, has the appearance of acceptance, has the appearance of something to s that maybe to some people would think, think are godly, that even some Christians would accept as being godly, because we are saying we are going to accept everyone. We are accepting everyone, we are accepting everything. It is a doctrine of acceptance. But actually, um, God called us to, to love the people, yes, but he, he didn't call us to love the doctrines of the people, whatever it is that they might be preaching or believing contrary to his command. So in the latter days, more and more, people are going to fall away from the truth, fall away from the commandments of God, begin to accept and acknowledge and espouse um, all these new kind of doctrines, whether religious or social or moral, uh, and, um, and it will just be accepted, be accepted as something new and good. At the time, there was a group called the Gnostics, which I think I had mentioned before, um, and they believed that the, the body was evil and only the spirit was good. And they believed that they had like a special knowledge that was kept secret from the rest of the world. And so there were a lot of things related to the body because they believed that the body was evil. Um, a lot of things related to the body that they felt was defiling. So for instance, eating meat was considered defiling to the soul. Um, marrying was considered uh, a defilement and sinful because it was pertaining to the body. Um, and so they took their own law and they substituted it for the law of God, essentially making themselves to be God. Um, uh, some people take this uh, verse incorrectly to argue against the church um, when, we, when we speak about, for instance, that we should be fasting dur during different times of the year. They say, well, see, look, it says here that you should not command to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving. But actually, this is a very different thing. Here, the people are saying, these Gnostics, um, they were saying that meat is evil, meat is wrong to be eaten. Right, which is in the church, we are not saying this. In the church, we're saying, in order for the sake of self-control, we deny ourselves certain foods, we deny ourselves certain pleasures and certain things for the sake of growing in self-control, not because that those things are evil or they shouldn't be accepted with thanksgiving. So it's a very different thing. 
Um, so, so here he is, he's warning St. Timothy about these new doctrines and the, and the things that are going to begin to infiltrate the church. And, of course, we see now in our modern day um, a lot of different ideas infiltrating the church, um, uh, you know, through, through the minds of the people, through the influence of the culture and society. And we have to be very careful um, not to accept these things. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. So here's emphasizing that God did not create anything to be evil, but all things should be used in the right way according to God's design. You know, when God created the universe, he did not create anything evil in it. Everything was good. It is only later that, that Satan twisted the things that God made to turn it to be evil. And this is true also of temptation. Every temptation that we experience, of course, temptation is coming from Satan. Every temptation we experience is actually something good that devil twisted to be evil. And he twisted it to be evil in various ways. Maybe he twisted it to be evil in the timing that that good thing should be enjoyed or the way that that good thing should be enjoyed. Um, the, 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 types of, um, the, the, the types of things that maybe God intended to be used in a certain way or at a certain time or with certain people, but he twisted it. So for instance, sexuality, for instance, God created it as good and he created there to be certain boundaries around it in order to protect it because it is a sacred thing. And he said, for instance, it should only be practiced in the context of marriage. Right. The, but the world took it and they said, no, well, this if sexuality is a good thing. That means we can practice it at any time, in any way with whoever we want. Right. And so they removed all of the boundaries from it. But in removing the boundaries, it became def a defiled thing. And it became something that actually separates us from God rather than something that is holy and righteous. So God created everything to be good. And maybe one of the one of the problems that we have sometimes is we don't emphasize enough the goodness of everything that God made. But there came a defilement there came something to twist you know if you think of the parable of the wheat and the tares the parable of the wheat and the tares christ says that there is a man who owns a field that is filled with wheat right and so th th it is a good field right it is filled with wheat but in the night an enemy came and he and he and he went into the land and he planted the tares which are like weeds right and these weeds that are planted they look exactly like the wheat, right? So tares, um, when they're still not mature, they look like wheat. So if you were to go to the field and look at everything that was planted, you wouldn't be able to differentiate the wheat from the tares. And that's why um, the, the, in the parable, the man said that he's going to wait until all of the, 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 the plants are fully grown. Then he'll be able to distinguish between the wheat and the tares and he'll be able to separate the two right so so it, it's as though satan came and he planted the tares right he planted the tares in our lives so where we look at them and we have to be very careful to discern is this wheat is this tares is this something good is it something not good so god created everything to be good but satan came and he twisted it and he darkened it and he, and he made it to be where our natural desires and inclinations are maybe for a twisted version of the things that God made rather than the authentic thing that God made. If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine, which you have carefully followed. But reject profane and old wives' fables and exercise yourself toward godliness. For bodily exercise profits a little, 
but godliness is profitable for all, for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. So he's saying, one, do not succumb to superstition and rumors, right? He says, reject profane and old wives' fables and exercise yourself toward godliness. Okay, two, he said, spend your time not doing vain things, right? He says, for bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all. Like how much time do we invest in our lives on like things that are materialistic, you know, that are focusing only on our body, focusing only on our appearance, focusing only on things that, na that naturally are fading away that we will not keep forever. Um, but godliness is profitable for all. So if we are uh, keen on taking care of our bodies as we are, then how much more should we be careful to take care of our spirits as well? Um, so, so uh, and he's saying instruct the brethren, right? Like, so he's saying when you are teaching, Timothy, when you are teaching, teach this because these are the things that the people are struggling with and need to hear and in this way you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ and this is true also of us like when we are sharing the good news of the gospel with people we are speaking to them y yes we are speaking about salvation but part of the salvation is we're speaking about what is it that is entrapping us like what is it that is keeping us from growing what is it that maybe has distracted us from the right path that we should be walking? And a lot of times, yes, maybe there is materialism. Maybe there is a focus on vanity and things that um, really do not have any eternal value. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. For to this end, we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. These things command and teach. Okay, so we accept what suffer, uh, we suffer reproach. So we accept physical sufferings and we deny ourselves the pleasure of the flesh as a spiritual exercise to attain the heavenly kingdom. This is why it says, for to this end, we both labor and suffer reproach. Like for the sake of this journey that we're on, this journey of salvation, for the sake of the love of God, for the sake of denying the flesh, for the sake of self-control, for the sake of not being caught up in all these deceptions of demons and, and these things that we're talking about, for this end, we labor, right? We are, we are laboring. You know, instead of being caught up in the flood of dissipation, meaning instead of just kind of going with the crowd and going with the flow, which is the easy path, right? If we believe that this is wrong, contrary to God and leads us away from God, then we are actively working against it. It's like you're, 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 you're swimming against the current, right? So someone who is swimming against the current, it's very difficult to swim against the current. It's exhausting to swim against the current. And maybe you feel like you're putting all your effort trying to swim and you're barely making any progress, right? Because you're swimming against the current. And it would be much easier just to stop and just let the current take you wherever it is that it's going to take you. But this is the labor. When we say that we as Christians, we labor, this is the labor. You know, Christianity is not just about, you know, receiving blessings from God and feeling the joy in Christ and all of these things, which of course it is, but there's also a component that it God is asking us to do, which is to fight, right? Because our nature maybe is not sanctified and we go after and desire the things that are harmful and sinful, right? So he's saying labor, struggle, struggle against those things, um, orient your life in such a way to fight against the sinful desires and in this also you will suffer reproach meaning you people will reproach you people will rebuke you people will fight against you people will fight against the way of life that you have chosen so it's not just that you're warring against your own nature your human fleshly nature 
that is um, wanting you to kind of just give in to all of these temptations, but you're also suffering against the society and the world, right? Because you are trying to live contrary to the world, trying to live in a, in a, in a, in a world that despises you, despises your morals, your values, despises your faith, um, wants to tempt you away from God, right? So th then he says, because we trust in the living God, this is why we labor, this is why we suffer reproach, right? Because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. These things command and teach. So even from the very beginning, you know, this is the same message actually that in the church we are still preaching to this day. You know, 2,000 years later, we are still preaching the same message. We're saying labor, right? Um, to this end, we labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God. And so really the, the course of salvation, the role of the church, the, 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 the activities of the believers are uh, from the beginning up until now the same. This is why King Solomon said well, there is nothing new under the sun. Um, and every generation struggles with the same things, maybe in a different form. Maybe it looks different, but it's the same fundamental things. And human beings are fundamentally the same, and we fundamentally have the same desires. We fundamentally have the same weaknesses and struggles as, as it has always been. And that's what makes the Bible to be such an apl applicable book, because it is the same, right? The, the names of the people change, and maybe the exact circumstances change, but I essentially we're all struggling with the same thing, and we all have the same temptations. And so here St. Paul is exhorting Timothy, and he's saying, preach these things. Like, this is what hu the, the humanity needs. This is the human condition. Preach these things for the sake of the encouragement um, of all the people. Now he's speaking specifically to St. Timothy, and he's saying, let no one despise your youth. But be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. So St. Timothy was very young. And many of the people that he would be serving uh, and being the bishop over were actually older than him. And so this could have been something that concerned St. Timothy. And saying, how is it that I, as a young man, I'm going to go and I'm, I will have authority over um, all of the church and that people are going to follow me and listen to me and, and, and do as I say. Um, but actually he says here, be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Why is it that people are going to follow you? They're not going to follow you simply because you have a title, but because you have, uh, you have demonstrated um, trustworthiness, because you have demonstrated that you live according to what you preach and that you are also laboring and you are suffering reproach, and you are the one who is actually the first one, the one who labors the most, the, the one who suffers the most reproach, the one who is, who is an example to, to everyone. Um, you know, we had spoken before about, if anyone is familiar with the book, the John Maxwell book about the, uh, the five lever levels of leadership. Has anyone read this book, Five Levels of Leadership? Okay. So in this book, um, it talks about why do people follow a leader? And there's five, he says there's five levels. The very first level is called position, which means the reason that someone would follow you is simply because you have a title, like you're the manager, right? Maybe anyone who has had a manager at work that you don't really respect very much, um, you work for them kind of because you're forced to, and you don't want to do it, you don't like doing it, you don't enjoy doing it, and maybe you talk about that person behind their back, um, and you don't really want to do anything they say because you don't really trust them, um, and they just have a title, right? The
the fact that they have a title and that they're a manager forces you to follow them in some sense, um, but you're not really doing it with joy or respect or trust that this person knows what they're talking about. This is the, the level of position. Um, some people mistakenly believe that because they have a position, then that means that they have the respect of the people and they can command the people. Um, I remember when His Eminence, uh, Metropolitan Yusuf, was talking to like the new priests that are being ordained, and he would say, when you, when you go to the church all right, for the first time, for the first year, don't change anything. Like, you know, if it's a church that's already existing um, and you have this new priest who is coming, says don't try to change anything the first year. Your first year is just to get to know the people and so that they would know you and they would come to respect you, right? Because if you go in from the very beginning and you're going to be like, okay, well, we're going to change the Sunday school system. We're going to change the deacons and we're going to do this. We're going to do that. Even if the ideas themselves are good and they need to be done. But when you come in from the very beginning, you haven't yet established trust so that the people would want to follow you. Maybe they will do it because you are the priest and because they have to follow you and they are told that this is the case. But when you start going and making a lot of changes to a system that already exists, even if the system has problems, you're going to encounter friction and resistance, right? So don't try to do that from the beginning. Just because you have a position doesn't mean that you yet have really the, the love of the people so that they would follow you gladly, right? And then so in the book, he goes up higher and higher, you know, like you, like uh, the second stage, I think, is called permission, uh, where, where now people are like more like warming up to you. And they essentially it's called permission because I am giving you permission to lead me like I am consenting that you are my leader. The third level is called, I think, production. Production is um, I see now that you are um, uh, like 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 successful, like, you know, your your ideas work. Um, I have a tra you have a track record now that you are now like whenever all the things that you have done they've they've been successful so now I'm trusting you more right um, and then I can't remember the fourth one what it's called uh, but it's like you're investing hmm? people development yeah you're investing in the people okay so now it's like I'm spending my time to make you a better person right so when when the when the person when the when the, let's say the employee or whatever feels like that their manager is wanting to send them to training, is wanting them to grow, wanting them, they're, they're being coached and whatnot, that adds another layer. And then the last one is called personhood, which is kind of like you've become like, um, you, you've, become, you've become kind of like a legend, like at that point. Like we hear certain names of like people who are leaders, like they're so accomplished in everything that they've done. Like maybe His Holiness Pope Shenouda, for instance, when people hear about him, he's like legendary in everything that he has done for the church and everything that he did and all the things that he taught. And people respect him just to hear his name. Even if they have no real personal interaction with him, they don't need to discover who this person is because that's like their, their reputation precedes them. So here he's saying, even though you are a youth, even though you're, 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 you're maybe there's, there's other people with more experience than you, um, and maybe they will come to, there will be some awkwardness there in, in, in telling these older people what it is it that they should be doing, how to live their life. How is it that you're going to get there? By what? Be an example. And if you are an example in all of these things, then people will follow you, right? Because they will see you are successful, you are authentic, you are sincere, you are genuine in every way. And so a lot of times in our lives, we try to get other people to change or to follow us by giving them commands. We say, this is wrong. Change this. Don't do this. You know, and maybe parents to their kids as well. Like we, we tell our kids a lot of stuff they need to do. You know, don't do this, don't do that. But, but if we model it for them, 
even if we don't have to say anything, but we just model it for them, you know? Uh, be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity, then simply by our example, it will wear off on everyone else, right? And again, this is how we see, like those pinnacle leaders that we see that rise up, whether in the church or outside the church, simply by their example, by what is it that they've done, that people want to um, follow them. Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. So he's saying, keep studying, right? Um, sometimes people think that when you reach like a certain status, that means you have all the answers and that you, there's nothing left to learn. No, actually, there's still a lot to learn. We, we keep learning the rest of our life. So he's saying, uh, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine, okay? No one has the fullness of understanding. Everyone should continue studying. I remember when I was attending the seminary, there was uh, one of the priests who taught one of the classes that I was attending. Uh, he taught like the history class. Um, they're, they're at the seminary, like it's over a long weekend and there's three classes and each class is nine hours. So a total of 27 hours of class in three days. Um, and so he taught one of the classes, the nine hours. So there was two other classes. So the other two classes are 18 hours. So this teacher, right, he's this priest, he was an older man. He was maybe in his late 50s. Um, he sat through all the lectures, okay, of all of the other two lectures for 18 hours. And he sat there taking notes uh, the entire time. And I remember thinking, like, I could, bar I could barely stay awake, like, I, like, throughout all those lectures. Like, I think I drank, like, 10 cups of coffee to try to stay awake. But he was, like, energetic, paying attention, uh, you know, writing notes. I was doodling. Um, but that's what he was doing, right? And, and, and even at the end the um the dean not not the dean but the uh, yeah the dean um like the priest in charge of the program uh he uh you know he commented on on this priest and how he was so diligent in everything that he was doing so uh, there is no age or status or rank where whereby we think that we know everything and now everything is just kind of to us like trivial no we we continue to learn but we have to have that mindset of learning that if I believe that when I listen to others that I can benefit from them, from their experience, from their knowledge, right, then I will, I will gain something. But if I think, if I have the attitude, it's like I already know everything and there's nothing for me to benefit or gain, then maybe I'll miss out. And, and so here he's telling Timothy, um, keep learning, keep studying. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. So we had spoken last time about how St. Paul had mentioned that there was some prophecy regarding the ordination of St. Timothy to be a bishop. Um, and so this gift that is in you is the gift of priesthood, right? So this gift of priesthood that you have received with how? With the laying on in hands of the eldership. Uh, we had also mentioned before how, you know, in the, in the Protestant translations of the Bible that we're using, the term Elder, elder is used um, to mean both elder and priests. So here, the eldership is the priesthood. So the 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 in, in the uh, from the very beginning, right? So here we're talking about in the first century, right? How is it that priests were ordained and bishops were ordained through the laying of hands? The same exact way that we still do it in the church today, through the laying of hands of the bishop. The pope himself is also ordained through the laying of hand. The bishops are ordained through the laying of hands. Um, and so on. So, so here he is saying, don't neglect the gift, right? And in this case, of course, it is the, the gift of the episcopate, the, the, the bishopric, the priesthood. 
Um, and this is true for all of us. Like if God gives us a talent, it is wrong not to use it. You know, I've, I've, met, I've said this several times like to the servants. Um, if God gives you a talent, then he wants you to use the talent. It is a sin not to use it. Uh, I'll say that again. Like for instance, if you have a great musical ability, then that means God wants you to use your musical ability for whatever. Use it. Use it to glorify God in some way, right? And if you have that ability and you choose not to use the ability, then why did God give it to you? He didn't give it to you just so that you could, like, you know, that's like the in the parable of the talents, like this, the servant, the the servant who took the talent and he buried it in the ground, right? He didn't do anything with the the, the talent, right? So God gives us talents because he wants us to use the talents. He didn't give it to us so we could bury it in the ground. And he didn't give it to us so that we could only use it for ourselves or for, or for our own benefit. He wants us to share it and to use it to encourage and to benefit the entire um, body of Christ. So he said, do not neglect this gift that is in you. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Um, the, the, the other thing that I also always talk to the servants about is that the, the service is part of your own salvation. right? It's not just like I have a job, and my job is the salvation of other people. No, actually, this job is both for my own salvation and the salvation of other people. Because he's saying, if you do what I'm saying... If you uh, continue and studying and growing and not neglecting the gift that is in you, right, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Both yourself and those who hear you. So, so when God grants us a gift that he wants us to use to serve in some capacity, this is not just so that I could help others, not just so that I could benefit others, but actually this is my own salvation as well. This is the means by which God has allowed me to serve him to glorify him. And this is why it's very important for us um, to, to use that gift. Meditate on these things and give yourself entirely to them. Like, like pour your whole life, all of your energy into the gifts that you have, been, you have received and use them to the fullest capacity that you can because this is your salvation as well as the salvation of those who benefit from them. Okay, That's the end of chapter 4. Any questions before we move on to chapter 5? Chapter 5 is all about how to treat different groups of people in the church, like different categories of people that we find in the church. And, and St. Paul is giving St. Timothy um, guidelines on how to deal with these various groups. Okay, So he says, Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, with all purity. Okay? So he's saying, how is it that we should deal? So again, St. Timothy is a younger man. So how is it that this younger man is going to deal with the elderly people? Right? The older man. So if, uh, if you have someone who is older and he commits some kind of trespass, he, he causes some problem or he commits a sin or like something that he needs to be like chastened or corrected in some way, Right? How is it that he should do it? Well, again, um, St. Timothy needs to be minded with the fact that we should deal with the elderly people in a respectful way. Right? 
when he says honor your father and mother in the commandment, it's not just speaking specifically about the biological father and mother, but it's speaking about in general. Like those people who are um, at a, of an older age are deserving of respect and are deserving of, of like being dealt with in gentleness. Okay, so he's saying do not rebuke. Do not rebuke does not mean do not chasten or do not like just ignore the problem. He's not saying do not ignore the problem, but he's saying the way that you are going to deal with the problem is not the same way that you would deal with a child, right? Because the, the, the way you deal with a child is different than the way you would deal with an older person. Um, St. John Chrysostom, he says, the priest deals with married people who have children and servants with the wealthy and the officials who possess authority. This is why a pastor needs to be a many-sided man. I do not say that he must be hypocritical, deceptive, or flattering, but that he needs to be extremely flexible. He needs to go along with each one in order to make him feel comfortable in his specific circumstances. He needs to be merciful and strict, as it is impossible for a pastor to apply the same treatment to all those under his care. He is like a physician who applies the same treatment to all under his care. Sorry, he is like a physician who cannot use the same medicine for all his patients, or like the ship captain who must know more than one way by which to face the winds, for we are exposed to many winds. Right, so this is the discernment. How is it that I deal with each one differently, right? Differently not because I'm showing partiality or favoritism, but differently because not, the s not, not everyone responds well to the same style, to the same approach. There's different reasons why. Just like when St. Paul says, I have, become, um, I, I have become all things to all people, right? To the Jews, I was like a Jew. To the Gentiles, I was like a Gentile. Why? So that I, by all means, may save some. Meaning the way that I speak to them, the, the focus of my speech, the attitude that I have, the things that I do, whether I'm speaking to a Jewish person or to a Gentile, is different because they need something different in order to be um, saved. So here, like when speaking to um, like someone uh, older, I come with more gentleness, like as a friendly conversation to bring up whatever it is that um, that this person has, you know, done wrong. This is sometimes also why people stumble when reading, like, the writings of the Desert Fathers. You know, the, the Desert Fathers, um, of course, they're very rich and, and, and valuable for us to read, and I encourage everyone to read them. But keep in mind that when we are reading them, that these writings were written for the benefit of monks and nuns who lived in ascetic life in the desert, right? So the type of discipline that they are called to live and the type of chastening that they would receive whenever they fail, right, is very different than the kind of life that we are living. So sometimes people read the writings of these desert fathers and they become offended at the severity of what's being said. You know, like in the, in the book uh, Ladder of Divine Ascent, uh, St. John Climacus, he speaks about there is this monastery called the prison. And this prison is where anyone is sent who's done something wrong, the, the monks. And he speaks about how like the monks stand there all day staring up into heaven with tears in their eyes and you know, like very brutal type of uh, environment, right? It's not a place that you would really want to be. Um, and I think if we try to apply such principles to the normal people, like people would leave the church. Even in the early church, there was uh, more severity. So for instance, when people would be under discipline because they had lapsed into some kind of sin, there would be like a group of people called the mourners or the standers or the you know people who would go stand in a certain corner in the church and they would just stand the whole time. They're not allowed to sit. Or a group of people who would just be like crying the entire time. Or like th there would be all kinds of different categories of people 
because at the time that was effective at the time people felt like the church is so important to me that i'll be willing to be chastised to such an extent um for falling into sin and i don't want to be cast out of the church right today if you tried to do something like that people would just go to another church like they would just, um so so that that's not something that that can be applied today but the same principle applies like what can we do for a certain group of people in order for them to realize their faults and to repent right the goal, the goal and, and there isn't any one recipe for that right everyone is different everything is different also he speaks about dealing with the women older women as mothers younger women as sisters with all purity um, of course when when um, when dealing with um, like for instance in the, the clergy for instance because you're speaking about saint timothy uh, dealing with the younger women he has to be careful in the way that he deals with them um, so as not to fall in any kind of sin to have good boundaries with them and so on with all purity okay then he says honor widows who are really widows okay so I want to ask you, what is a widow versus a widow who is really a widow? What does he mean here when he honor widows who are really widows? What is a widow and what is a widow who is really a widow? Joe? Okay, good. So that's one of the criteria. Is like the here he's not speaking. So so in order to understand this, there was a certain rank in the church called the widows, right? Of course, when in, in we use the word widow to mean any woman whose husband has died, that's a widow, right? But in the early church, there was a rank of widows, and yes, those are women whose husband has died, but there's more than that, okay? It's like w women who had a certain role of service um, in the church. And so this was, say, he's talking to St. Timothy about how to choose those women to be among the rank of widow, to be among the rank of widow. Because it's kind of like what we say is like consecrated servants that we have now, or like uh, women who, who take a vow of celibacy and consecrate their life in service, right? They're not nuns. They don't live in a monastery. They serve. They're living in the world. Um, and this is kind of the closest thing to the rank of widow, okay? But but it was a requirement that she would actually be a widow, so she didn't ha she didn't have a husband, okay? But what Joe said is right. Some women, though that they were widows, they still could be supported by their families, okay? And so they didn't need assistance from the church in order to to live, okay? But some widows were truly completely alone. They had no support. They had no family, and those are the ones that needed the extra support from the church so here he's speaking both about the widows but also about like using the resources of the church wisely so don't give out the resources of the church without first like understanding the situation this is why like in the church we um we we uh we study like when somebody's asking for like financial support financial assistance right the easiest thing, and maybe we think the most compassionate thing, is we're just going to give to everyone who asks. Well, number one, we don't have the resources to give to everyone who asks. Number two, it can be very easily abused, right? So you you consider who is this person, right? Um, you know, sometimes like people will come and say, uh, you know, I don't have money to go to like a convention or you know, I don't have money to go to something, but 
they spend their money in many other things, right? Like they're they're spending their money on all kinds of stuff that shows that they have money. It's not like they don't have any money. Um, but the what they choose to spend it on, maybe they choose not to spend it on this, but they choose to spend it on something else. Like so, considering like, okay, what is this, right? Who who who, who, who is this person really in need or not? Okay. Um, but if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents, for this is good and acceptable before God. So exactly this point, right? If a widow has children or grandchildren, it is the responsibility of her immediate family to support her, right? And this is actually a demonstration of piety. This is service, right? You know, we speak about what does it mean to serve God? This is a service, right? This is just as important as any other service that would be done in the church. You know, the parents spend their entire life giving to their children, sacrificing for their children, and then when the parents reach the age where they are unable to take care of themselves, then now it is the role of the children to help them. Now, this also has to be taken carefully because there can also be parents who abuse this, right, who maybe want to guilt their children into taking care of them when they really can take care of themselves, but because they feel lonely, because they feel like they want their children to be near them, they always make their children to feel like you have abandoned me. Why is it that you are not closer to me? Why don't you call me more? Why don't you come and see me more? Why don't you do this more? So again, how do you decide which it is? It takes discernment, right? There is a balance, right? How much of the attention that we give, let's say, to our parents is, is really um, an act of love because we give them what they need? versus like, no, maybe they're asking of me more than I'm able to give, right? Or more than they need right now. So um, it's, a, it's a balance. But the idea of repaying the parents for all the sacrifice that they made for us is, is, very, uh, is very important here. Now, she who is really a widow and left alone trusts in God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. So he's saying someone who is a widow who is a godly woman, who um, continues in prayer, right, is different than someone who is a widow but living in a life of sin, okay? So according to St. Paul, okay, the, the real widow, so he's saying the widow who is really a widow, is number one, has no family support, right, and so needs church financial support, that's one. Two, her life is characterized by faith, trusting that God will provide for her. Three, she is persevering in prayer and she's pious. She's seeking godliness. Four, she should not be seeking pleasure to fill her emptiness. Like someone who is going to go and like have relationships with other men, for instance, in, in order to um, fill the loneliness and emptiness that she has after her husband has died. Here, St. Paul is saying this person would not be considered a widow in the, ca- in, the, in, the, for in, the in the context of the church um, supporting this person. Okay. And these things command that they may be blameless. Okay, so the rules that St. Paul is outlining here, these are for the edification of the widow of the widows, right? It's it's not that um uh, like it should be enforced if the if the woman desires to take any assistance from the church. So like all of this is for edification that they may be blameless. He wants he wants St. Timothy to know that the reason that these rules are being in place is for the sake of the benefit of the widows, right? Not to exclude them from something, but to help them. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Okay? 
Why would you, why would does it say here that if a person does not help those of his own household that he has denied the faith and worse than an unbeliever? So the reason that a person might not support uh, those of their own household is might be because of selfishness, because they have, they want to spend their time doing something else. They want to spend their money doing something else. They feel burdened by uh, the, the 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 responsibility, and so they choose not to. They choose to ignore. Yes. Okay, so, so you're definitely being a bad example for other people to see. So, like, if you if your parents, for instance, need your help and you don't help them, then that's sending a message, especially as believers, that um, people see us as you know should be a model and example that we are not doing as we should do, and that's a bad example. It affects the salvation of others, definitely. Yeah. Yes. So if you know to do good and you don't do it, right, you will be judged more harshly than if you were ignorant and you didn't know, okay? And and yes, so someone who is a believer, right, is has been given the law of love. Like actually we see anyone who is a believer has experienced the love of Christ, right? Anyone who is a believer has experienced the love of Christ and benefits from the sacrifice of Christ. So when we look to our own salvation, we say, our salvation came at a, at a price. Our salvation did not come for free. God suffered in order for us to be saved. And this is an act of love that God has shown us. And he wants us to love one another the same. Right? This is fundamental in Christianity. So if a person who has received salvation from God, has received mercy from God, has received forgiveness from God, has received all these things from God, but then when it comes time for that person to show mercy and to show love and to give sacrifice to another person, then this is worse than an unbeliever who doesn't yet know the, the love of God, who has not yet received the, the salvation of God, who has not experienced that, right? So for them, they're, they're, they're blinded, they're darkened, they can't, they don't know. But for those who are believers, they see. What is it that we have received and what price did it cost Christ for our own salvation, right? So, so the person who has been given all these things should be the first one to be willing to give of themselves for the sake of the, the, the needs of those people who are closest to them. Also, these are the people who are closest to us. You know, in Luke chapter 6, when Christ is speaking about what is the Christian love, he says, you know, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even the sinners love those who love them right so 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 the the christian love is actually to love the enemy but we maybe still struggle to love the friend or to love the family you know let alone the enemy right so here he's speaking about those people who are the closest to us in the world like the 
the the the most intimate relationships the 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 the, the closest family and not just the closest family but the closest family who who sacrificed decades of their life in order for us to grow up and to have all that we have which is our parents right like they 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 gave up of themselves so so it's not even just like a cousin <laughs> you know it's not it's not even just somebody who is technically yes I'm related to them but I have no other you know connection with them and these are the 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 people who have shown me the most love than any other human being right so how much more then when they are in need should i feel obligated the duty right in order to serve them in whatever way do not let a widow under 60 years old so there's more criteria for it now this remember this is the rank of widow the rank in the church do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number and not unless she has been the wife of one man well reported of good works if she has brought up children if she has lodged strangers if she has washed the saints feet if she has relieved the afflicted if she has diligently followed every good work okay so um the older women um like who who have become widows right would dedicate themselves to service like a consecrated servant like think of also someone like for instance anna the prophetess anna the prophetess who lived in the temple she was a widow and and she lived and served god unceasingly in prayers right she is she would be like considered among this like rank of the of the widows and there were qualifications of this rank just like um, saint paul already spoke about the qualifications for a bishop qualifications of a deacon there's also qualifications of widow okay so not just any woman who lost her husband would then now be taken into the church and the church to take care of her and to give her everything no there, there are certain the certain rank certain qualifications um, she would be responsible to visit and take care of other women in the church this was primarily what the rank of widow was 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 to serve women um, in the church um, like deaconesses kind of like deaconesses um, so what are the requirements here she says wife of one man wife of one man meaning that she only was married one time she's only married one time why is that important Well, because once she's in this rank, can she marry again? No. So they, they want to choose someone who's not going to marry. She want to marry again. Like you are choosing to remain celibate. Okay? Again, it's a consecrated servant. You became single as a widow because you lost your husband, but you are not wanting to marry again. Okay? Reported for good works. So she has a good reputation because she's going to be a servant in the church. Uh, raised children, and she has the motherly instinct, right? She knows how to serve. She knows how to sacrifice. Lodge strangers, she's hospitable. She wants to give of herself for the sake of others, even complete strangers, because when you're in the church, who are you serving, right? You're not just serving your immediate family like you would have as a mother, right? You are serving strangers. You're serving people who are in the church that you might not even know. Wash the feet. Again, washing the feet is not literal. It just means like serving, serving and sacrificing and giving to the saints. Relieve the afflicted. So she's able to encourage and give uh, counseling, healing, um, those people who are suffering in some way, and um, followed every good work. So here are the criteria for those people who will be taken into the number. Do not let a widow 
under 60, right? So also had to be older again, because if she is younger, then maybe she would want to marry again. This is a woman who will not marry again. and She will be consecrated to serve God the rest of her life. But refuse the younger widows, for when they have begun to grow wanton against Christ, they desire to marry, having condemnation because they have cast off their first faith. So does this mean that he is saying that if there is a younger woman who became a widow because her husband died, that it is wrong for her to marry again? No. The short answer. So why? Yes, he's speaking specifically here about the rank of widow. He's, he's not saying that a woman cannot remarry, right, if she chooses. saying if a person is accepted into the rank of widow, because right in the rank of widow, what? Who's taking care of you? The church is. Like the church is now taking care of all of your needs, right? And you are a full-time servant in the church. So such a woman, if she were very young, okay, then it is more likely that she might choose to marry again and leave the service. So she would not be an appropriate um, person to select for this service. Yes, Sephra. Well, uh, but we'll continue and you'll see. Not if, because they've been consecrated. It would be like, like anyone who chooses a life of consecration it would then be wrong for them to, like, for instance, if a, a person who is becomes like a nun, right? A nun, she takes a vow that she is married to Christ. So if, if she decides to break the vow and to go back into the world and marry, then that would be what he's referring to. Yeah. And besides, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things which they ought not. So, again, like he's, he's saying, those, the younger ones, it's much e easier for them to fall into this temptation of becoming gossips and bu busybodies. So, instead of living a life of good works and service, they are tempted, and in their idleness, they spend their time in destructive ways. So, again, he's not saying here all young women, that if this were to happen to them, that this, this would be what happens. But he's saying it is more likely that a younger woman would not be able to be successful in this rank. That's why he's giving the guideline and saying 60 years old and above. Therefore I desire that the younger widows marry, bear children, manage the house, give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully, for some have already turned aside to Satan. So here he has nothing... No, there's nothing wrong with the younger widows to marry. He's not speaking that the younger widows should not marry. He's speaking about those who would be taken into the rank of widow in the church. Those are the ones who could not marry. So do not select people who are not fit for that position. Okay? But if a, a woman who's lost her husband uh, wants to marry, then actually he says, I desire that she marry to bear children, to manage the house, to give no opportunity to the adversary to speak, so that she would not fall into the idleness. Because the idleness you're speaking about is if a, a young woman is, is not married and she has, like, she's not, she's not, like, busying herself in her life with some responsibilities, then she's going to fall into a life of idleness, okay? Again, back at this time, you didn't have women who were educated. You didn't have women who could go and, and work on their own and fill their lives with other things. 
this was the role of women at the time. So if a woman didn't have a husband at the time as she grew older, and she didn't have a service in the church consecrated for it, then so she would be idle, right? And so this is what he's saying, I don't want this. Um, in 1 Corinthians 7, it says, But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Right? It is been better to marry um, than to remain unmarried, but desire marriage. If any believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve them, and do not let the church be burdened, that it may relieve those who are really widows. So again, if, if a family has among them widows, it is the role of the family to take care of the widows, not the church, so that the church would not be burdened. Now he's going to switch gears from speaking about the widows to speaking about the clergy. What are the duties toward the clergy? Let the elders who rule well, again the clergy, the elders here is the clergy, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who are labor in the, in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. So um, here he's, he's not saying here that the clergy should be desiring to receive honor, but that the honor that they receive is because of their unique role to bring the salvation of the people, right? Which is the most important thing, of course, that the church does, is to work toward the salvation of the people. So this is why they are worthy of double honor. But this honor is not a kind of like, 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 like flattery. It's not that kind of honor. It is a reverence toward those who have been given this role as laborers in the vineyard of God. Okay, and this is why he is saying, w when he says, "What you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain." What is what does that mean? What is the, what is that referring to? What is a muzzle? Covers the mouth, right? What is treading out the grain? While it's working. So, what would happen if the if the if the if the ox is muzzled while it's treading out the grain? What will happen? It can't eat from the grain. Right now, the role of the of the of treading out the grain is not to be eaten, right? Because it's planting, right? It's planting, but the ox would benefit through its work by eating of the grain as it's working to tread on the grain, like for the purpose of farming. So he's saying the ox is is being supported through the same work that it is doing, just like saying the laborer is worthy of his wages. So also the clergy are supported by the church. This is what this is what he is saying. The clergy should be supported by the church. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Why does he say this? So remember, he's speaking to Timothy, right? So... If somebody comes and accuses a priest of something, right? Wh what should why why is he saying you should have at least two or three witnesses? Because anyone can say anything about anybody, right? And especially the someone who is in the position of clergy, like one of the things the clergy does is he he rebukes people or he he gets people upset with him <laughs> um, because of because as a requirement of what he's doing. Right, so sometimes he has to rebuke. Sometimes he makes decisions that are not popular with certain people, and so he might make enemies. 
There might be people who are not happy with him and what he does, right? So don't just receive an accusation unless you are sure that it is real, right? There has to be two or three witnesses. Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest may also fear. Okay, so why, if we talk about, for instance, like love covers all sins, we say love covers all sins. Like when someone falls into a sin, we don't want to, uh, we, we don't want we don't want to publicize it, right? We don't we don't want to turn it into scandal. We don't want to embarrass the person who has fallen into sin, right? So why is this saying those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all? Sephra, Sephra If somebody has a microphone, you can pass it around. That's not a microphone. You're talking. This seems like a group, like it's not just a single person who's struggling with something. It's sound because it says those who are like there's a group of people. Well, what did you, what did you say the previous verse? Who were we talking about? Two or three witnesses. No, oh. do not receive an accusation against elder. an elder. Yeah. Right. So, so, so here he, he's speaking about someone in a very prominent position, right? Who is going to have a big influence on everyone, right? The priest, right? So, but but it could it could apply to anyone in a prominent position whose life is going to affect a lot of people. Kiroga, I interpret it incorrectly. I was gonna say it's kind of like if you saw someone not wearing something appropriate to church, then you would make the announcement like at the end. You wouldn't say to that specific person, mm. but you give the general announcement like to everybody, so that's all may know about it or receive the rebuke instead of targeting the one person. Uh, yeah, that's true also. Like that's why the priests they make us wear this so we you don't decide to wear something inappropriate. <laughs> make it. Use the microphone. The story of the man in Corinthians came to my mind mm. because it was a public sin. Like yeah. it was known to everyone. Like he's doing, and it. Uh, and I, I read one time before that this man was also clergy. He was like a deacon or or a priest, and he was committing this sin. And so Saint Paul in Corinthians like said like no, cast him out because mm -hmm. that's public sin and can affect the like the new believers in the church. Yes. So, like, all the times where there have been a situation where, like, there is a priest who has committed some public sin which became into a scandal, th the response to it is always public as well, where maybe the bishops will write a letter that is then publicly seen to address the issue and say what is the decision that has been made regarding this, right? Because because the people otherwise... the, pe the Otherwise, the people might think that if there has been no like public um, statement that the church is just kind of closing its eyes to it and looking the other way and not taking it seriously. Or they might think that this is accepted behavior because, again, there has been no consequence. So those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest may also fear also because it's a warning to anyone else who would be considering the same thing that they would, you know, stop. Like they would, they would not. Follow, follow the same footsteps of this person. Yes. Is it talking about those who were accusing falsely or is it talking about the the priests who were falsely accused or is it just a blanket of all? No, so it's saying of the priests who are rightly accused. It says, do not receive an accusation against an elder 
except from two or three witnesses. Those who are sinning, right? Those elders, right? So, because it's part, it's part of what happens when an accusation is coming against an elder. What happens when there's some uh, action that the priest has done that's wrong? So first, don't just accept it unless there's sufficient evidence, right, that it's happened. And then once you investigate, and see, this is the other thing, is sometimes what happens in the church is there's an accusation. And then everyone knows that the accusation has happened. And it causes a big scandal just because there's an accusation. But then the church begins to investigate. And the investigation is private, right? The investigation is not going to be made public. Once the, once the church comes to a conclusion in the investigation, maybe things don't look like the way that the accusation presented it from the beginning. And so the church, there doesn't, there's no action taken. And then people come and they're upset and it's like, why this priest did this or this person did that, you know? And, and, and at that point, since there has been nothing, it's, there has been no, nothing conclusive that has been done that warrants any kind of action, at that point, there's not going to be any more information given about the situation. Because sometimes, and especially now with social media, right, people get very upset, like, okay, there's been an accusation that something happened. But once the investigation is done, right, if it was concluded that, it's, that the accusation originally was false, right, then it's it there's not necessarily going to be a follow-up. There's not necessarily going to be, okay, and such and such and such. So so the, the, the thing to, to, to keep in mind about this is that the church takes anything seriously, and if there is a problem, then the rebuke will be done publicly, just like here. Not in order to shame the person who fell, okay, but but in, in order in order for it not to spread and to become a bigger problem. The other thing too with this is just because there is a rebuke, the idea of the rebuke is not the same thing as judgment. Judgment in the sense of like believing that this person can never repent. No, actually maybe the person repents. And the example you gave about the sinner of Corinth, he repented. And even though he was put out of the church, he was restored again. So th that's the other difference between the way that these things are handled in the church versus in the world. You know, in the world, unfortunately, when you have like these court cases where you condemn a person, right? Um, yes, the person did or committed a crime and they deserve whatever punishment they're going to get. But there's also a sense of hatred that is associated with it. Like we hate this person, you know, or we are better than this person. Look, this person is a degenerate uh, and they deserve what they got and we are better than them and we are glad that this person is forever, never going to get a chance to whatever, right? But there sh this all of this should be done with a spirit of mercy and should be done with an opportunity for repentance. Yeah, maybe the repentance doesn't mean that the person is going to have a chance to live a normal life again, right? Because maybe that was the nature of their sin or their crime that they committed. But it doesn't mean that we believe that the person cannot still be saved. It doesn't mean that we believe the person cannot be, um, you know, can, cannot be corrected and be convinced. In the case of the sinner of Corinth, the, the nature of their sin allowed them to be restored again, and they were. Right. This then is the um, this then is on the, 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 the congregation, the church, to be loving enough to be able to accept the person who has who was known to have fallen, known to have committed a sin, known to have been rebuked by the church. But then after a period of chastening to be restored again and that nobody is there remembering the past wrongs and trying to continue to condemn the person for something they've already repented of. Right. This is this is then on us as the congregation to be able to do that. I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. Again, so the judgment should be fair and balanced. Yes. 
What does he mean, and the elect angels? Who, who is that? The angels in the church? Yeah, so I think the, the word angels here is used to, like, kind of like how he refers to the people as saints. Yeah. Do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. So again, he speaks about not ordaining hastily, meaning be very sure who is it that you, that you are going to ordain. So there should be, that's why like now we have an election process, and the process is, is a public one, and it's one that is designed to bring up any issues about a specific person who is a candidate for ordination so that it can be discovered early on before the ordination happens, okay? Um, and then he says also, in dealing with people closely, because the, 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 the priest has uh, a lot of intimate connection, contact with people, right? He knows their life intimately, knows secrets about them that other people don't know, interacts with them in private settings and so on, right? So keep yourself pure, meaning, meaning don't be scandalized by the sins that you hear, and also have appropriate boundaries with the people that you are serving so that you are not falling into the sins that they themselves are falling into. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. What do you think about this? Well, that's what I'm asking you. What do you think? So he has an infirmity, he has a sickness. <laughs> yeah, use electrolytes for your stomach's sake. Okay. Well, this isn't about the fasting. This is about the idea of drinking alcohol. Yeah. So like, so like when, because we, we say, uh, we, we look down on the idea of drinking alcohol. So why is it that he is telling him to drink alcohol? Yeah, it's a little. Rita? Mm-hmm. Okay, yes, it's medicinal. Like, you know, has anyone ever maybe had a surgery or something and then they gave you morphine? Okay, did you ever say that, like, no, I, I don't, I'm not going to take morphine because it's drugs? Drink wine. So the, the, the purpose of it, the purpose of it was, like you said, medicinal, right? It wasn't, it wasn't a casual drink, right? Again, like morphine is a, is, a, is a drug, like you can be addicted to it, right? And there are some people who maybe are addicted to it. And of course, we don't, and the church condone that. We say, no, don't take drugs. But for the sake of something like having a surgery, right, taking that is beneficial. Or like, you know, like a woman who's about to give birth, it's like she gets epidural. You know, there's all kinds of drugs that, that people take in order to like, to ease pain, right? That, that, that if you took it just as a casual drug would be harmful for you. Right, but it has a purpose. Right, it has a purpose. Um, 
Some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment, but those of some men follow later. Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident, and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. Right? So he's speaking about, again, because this is like if you, the, the, the idea of like the, the clergy, right? And the hidden and the clear works, right? Of the clergy, of a person who you are uh, looking to ordain as clergy, okay? So some people, their sins are evident, right? Like there are some people whose sins are clearly evident. Like you can say, I saw this person do such and such. But there are other sins that are very private, right? Very hidden, that people do not know and do not see, right? Um, but those follow later, meaning even the the private sins, right? And again, like when we're speaking about sins, we're speaking about like unrepented sins. Like everybody has sins that they struggle with and they repent of. But we're talking about if somebody is hiding something, right? If someone's hiding something and it's not evident and it, 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 it should, you know, disqualify them from the service, right? But we are trying to discover it, right? So there are some sins that are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment, but those of some men follow later. So if somebody's hiding something, right, it eventually will be discovered, right? Eventually. Like it will, it will come up. Like there will, be, there will be nothing to hide, right? Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident, and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. So there are some people, like their, their good works are clear. Like when you see someone who have like very, very um, clear virtues in their life, and you look at them and you say this person is saintly in the way that they live their life, right? But there are others that try to hide their virtues, right? Like maybe we know of some monks and saints who try to hide their virtues, so that people do not see all of their good works. But what ends up happening to them is eventually also those good works become evident and become known, cannot be hidden. Okay. Any questions? This is the end of the chapter. Okay. Glory be to God forever. Amen. Come pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. We ask for your blessing in all things. We ask that you protect us, and you keep us safe, and you guard us, and you help us to understand and meditate on all of your scripture and all the words that St. Paul said to St. Timothy for the purpose of helping him in his ministry. We ask, O Lord, that you help us to always be a good example to others in word, in faith, in purity, and love and that you guide us and protect us in all things. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, the communion, the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace, the peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen.